Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Well, who doesn't? Although we can't promise you superpowers, we can help you feel like a superhuman with our friends at Ascent Nutrition. Ascent Nutrition is making a huge difference in this community, and they have a new product that we absolutely love, pine pollen. Last year, several prominent scientists started speaking out about the power of pine trees and the benefits they can offer us. Ascent Nutrition offers raw, wild-crafted pine pollen. Pine pollen contains 200 nutrients in it, making it a true superfood. It's nature's highest source of phytohormones, which support hormone and libido health for men and women. Pine pollen also supports brain health, detoxification, as well as many facets of cardiovascular health. Their pine pollen is selling fast. It's literally flying off the shelves. Ascent Nutrition is on a mission of offering deeply transformative and helpful nutrients to as many people as possible to help bring about a great collective shift in human consciousness and human health. To order your pine pollen supply and check out everything Ascent Nutrition has to offer, use the link in the description or visit GoAscentNutrition.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your entire purchase. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Charles Utter. First, we have a couple of announcements. The Forbidden Documentary will begin production this summer and will be hitting the road as soon as we can. We want to be able to visit with as many folks as possible, but we are going to need your help. If you'd like to help with a donation, you can go to supportfkn.com or use a PayPal link in the description. Anything is greatly appreciated. And if you make a donation through supportfkn.com, you get access to Corey Hughes' research going into his new book about the JFK assassination. Also, if you have a business and you would like to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We have unbeatable ad packages. Come check us out. Forbidden Knowledge News always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Rockfin is where you get our premium content, as well as all the premium and free content from every other creator on Rockfin. Go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus, or click the link in the description to sign up. And check out our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News, also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You find amazing podcasts from our community there. 
Today I want to welcome Charles Utter. He is author of Roman Collar Crime, which is a chilling story about a small-town Catholic priest who was a con artist, fraudulent investor, and serial sex abuser, and Charles holds nothing back with the book. He is on a mission to influence a healthy redistribution of power that encourages more transparent and collaborative faith environment. Charles, welcome. How you doing? I'm doing well. Another beautiful day in Colorado. Yes, it is. It is a beautiful day in Colorado. And we were talking before, Charles, your story is incredible, and it's extremely important for as many to hear as possible, I believe, because these types of events are, are happening everywhere and on a much larger scale, affecting people all over the world. And yours is a great example of the corruption that's possible throughout all levels of religious leadership positions. But let's start today with a little bit more about yourself and your background before we get into the story. Well, um, I actually went to, uh, grew up in the town that uh, we're going to be talking about where the peace priest ruled for 20 years. I went to the high school that uh, he ran, uh, uh, as well as all my siblings, uh, and there were seven of them. Um, my uh, uh, family was uh integral to the uh, operation of the uh, parish because one of my uncles was, or a couple of my uncles were the, some of the prime supporters of the priest. And uh, some of the, what they did, of course, was positive, but uh, their incentive to keep the priest, uh, priest's abuse uh, a secret uh, really hurt people. Um, but I, you know, went from there on to, to college I went to St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, graduated with a degree in, in history and, and went into coaching. Uh, one of the positives that uh, uh, about all of this was that the coaches that I had in high school were the best money could buy, and I learned well from them. And so I was a fairly successful coach for the brief time that I stayed in the business. Uh, but, uh, of course, they wouldn't pay me enough to to raise a family, so I had to, had to find a, an alternative. But... Uh, yeah, I went into the life insurance business and then became a financial planner and um, been very active in my church, stayed faithful to the to the uh, to the Catholic Church, um, served on a a, a, a parish council, a, a school parish school bo school board, um, raised significant amounts of money for the uh, for the school as the finance chairman of the PTO. Um, uh, and was instrumental in uh, um, starting a, uh, a community foundation in the community that we moved to in Colorado, which was Longmont, Colorado. So I'm the co-founder of that. And so been very active in the community and, uh, and um, enjoyed uh, life the best I could under the circumstances. Now, what was it that actually brought you to, to begin writing the book? Well, um, primarily it was uh, the fact that we had a close family and had uh, family reunions every other summer. So all eight of us, and plus my mother usually, would gather somewhere uh, in a nice place a couple, two, three times I came to Colorado. And uh, all that we ever talked about during those gatherings was this priest. I mean, it was constant over and over at length. And so finally somebody said, you know what, somebody ought to write a book. Well, it was 
a while later that uh, that I decided, you know what, I think that that's going to be me. And my sister, my oldest sister, uh, only uh, experienced his influence in high school, I think in her senior year. So she went off to college, came back home, married a farmer, very successful farmer, and was active in the uh, parish uh, before she understood what was going on. And uh, then she joined with one of the assistant pastors to create a group of people who went to the bishop to do everything they could to uh, expose this priest and get him out of the community. Very good. Well, uh, let's start at the beginning of this story. Give us um, a, a synopsis of, of the, the book, and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. Well, um, the uh, I think that the people should understand that it's a historical novel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, most of the incidences that I relate in the book did happen. Some I made up. Uh, and of course, the details of the conversations and things that went on, of course, had to be uh, I have to use a little creative genius with that because I didn't know what was what was said in detail. But uh, in general, uh, I start the book uh, with um, uh, a um, event uh, at the state basketball tournament in uh, where the school that he would had run for a long time uh, had won their first state championship game. And uh, the sports writer that was there to cover the, the story had been covering the team for the local uh, newspaper for a long time. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he was very complimentary to me when I was playing. Now, we didn't name this person, give him the proper, his real name or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I then used him uh, to, to at first... Um, say to the priest, you know what, you've done such a fantastic job at this place, this school, you've created these great athletic teams, uh, because uh, not only did they win the state championship, but uh, he hired great coaches and uh, paid them extraordinary amounts of money, far more than they could earn any place else. Um, my the, my uh, high school football coach was, uh, was uh, uh, Ron Earhart, who later became the head football coach of the New England Patriots. Uh, just tell you that just to, to give you an idea of the quality of coaches that he was able to hire in this little town, in this little school in southwestern North Dakota. Um, and so the story that the sports writer was going to write was going to be very complimentary. And he was really excited about, you know, telling the world about this successful uh, school and this priest that had built it and, and all those things. But as he uh, began to talk to people in the community, he began to get some feedback that wasn't so complimentary. And in fact, um, well, you you can read it in in the book exactly how that happened, but uh, he was advised uh, if he really wanted the facts to talk to my sister. And so uh, as he did that, then we kind of wrapped the story around his conversations with my sister and each one of the incidences that we, uh, that I talked about in the book were really uh, her relating uh, a story to this sports writer. And then we uh, tried to uh, uh, incorporate conversations with the bishop and to, re- to reveal uh, exactly what his attitude was toward this priest and how he tried to hide 
the circumstances surrounding all of this to quote protect the church etc and uh, tried to uh, create some uh, uh, dialogue that would uh, kind of expose the personality of this priest and the arrogance that he uh, with which he operated uh, and justified his is what I call depredations. Now so, you said you, you didn't use the name of the priest in the book. Uh, are you are you even allowed to say a name at all for this? Yeah, I don't see any reason why I can't. Um, I called him Joe Brennan because uh, Brennan is an uh, is an Irish name, and his mother was Irish, and all of the people that he grew up around uh, were Irish. His uh, his father was French, but he died uh, when he was real young, and so. He lived around his grandfather and grandmother and, and uncles and cousins from the Irish side. And so I called him Joe Brennan. But his, his name was actually uh, Eugene Lemires. And it, it might be important for people to know uh, his real name because um, part, at the end of the book, we outlined what happened to the great fortune that he built. Because part of what the, uh, uh, what makes this story so important is he he wasn't only a sexual abuser, but he was a thief. And, but he was a magnificently successful investor, and he accumulated a huge amount of money. Um, but uh, but uh, when he died, uh, it was discovered that the trust that he had created, which was designed to give everything back to charity, had created some um, charitable uh, uh, or had created some non-charitable income beneficiaries, um, presumably is going money going to some of the victims you know he had a bad conscience apparently but that invalidated the uh, charitable trust and exposed everything to estate taxes being a single person and dying at a time when only six hundred thousand dollars in assets could be passed tax-free to heirs the estate tax would have been huge so his uh, trustees went to court to try to um uh to uh restore the validity of this, uh, validity of this trust. And it took 10 years uh, for that litigation to proceed or to, to, to finish. And during that time, there was interest being charged. There was, uh, they were demanding money from, from the estate. And so they couldn't maintain the hotels that he had, uh, which were 12. And you can learn that in the book. Um, and so when it was all over, the value of the properties had dropped dramatically and weren't even worth enough to pay whatever estate tax was, was assessed. Now, the reason that the knowing the, new, the actual real name of this person is that you can actually go to uh, the internet, type in Eugene Lemire's estate, and you can see this whole story. I mean, this whole financial story, this tax story. Now, what time period uh, did this take place again? He uh, arrived in uh, what I call New London. Everybody knows who this really that that that, that was associated with. Uh, knows who the real people were and who the who real names are and everything. So mm -hmm. I don't think it, it matters if I talk about it. But it was New England, North Dakota. Um, and uh, what was the question? I just lost my train of thought. What time period? Oh, yeah. And it was from 1953 to 1973. Okay. So okay, priests yeah, don't get to stay that long in communities anymore, but he was uh, quite a presence. Right. Now, he was uh, highly influential in the community, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the community was about 50-50 Catholic and Lutheran, uh, German Catholic and Norwegian Lutheran. And uh, uh, he convinced the Catholic component that they shouldn't uh, uh, mix with the non-Catholics. And he wouldn't let the the kids in school date the non-Catholics. And he was constantly critical of those who were Catholic who were sending their kids to the, to the public school and things. So he, he created this, uh, this unity. But on the other hand, excuse me, I forgot to turn down my phone. Uh, but on the other hand, was able to grab the, uh, the loyalty of the Catholics through their devotion to the church, basically, and their traditional belief that the priests were pretty much a sacred entity. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence in the book that I try to communicate that shows uh, what uh, um, influenced the attitude of the Catholics. Uh, but yeah, he had huge amounts of money re that resulted from uh, taking money out of the offertory, investing it uh, on the one hand with, initially at least, with Joseph Kennedy. I didn't name him in the book, but I said mentioned that it was a former president's father, but he actually uh, invested in oil stock or uh, pumping and dumping oil stocks in Alaska with Joseph Kennedy, which was a fraudulent uh, entity, um, made a ton of money, got out and invested his uh, money into G.D. Searle and Company, which was the founder of the birth control pill and tripled his money in two years. And then, uh, followed Kennedy into the real estate uh, business. And Kennedy was actually learning all of this stuff from uh, some of the uh, uh, Catholic uh, finance chairmen around the country um, because he was a personal friend of Pope Pius XII. And so had close relationships around the country with various Catholic uh, bishops and et cetera. And so, um, uh, and this priest was getting uh, this information secondhand from a friend of his who was the uh, finance chairman of, this, of the uh, Archdiocese of Los Angeles, who he had gone to graduate school with. And so that's how this priest in this tiny little town was able to, get, uh, 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 to uh, find all these great investments because they were coming oh. from a friend through Kennedy. Uh, or I mean, Kennedy was getting information from him. It was kind of, you know, this um, uh, cabal of of uh, special interests, I guess you might call it. Yeah. But anyway, well, uh, go ahead. He he had all this money, and he was able to go out and use that money to hire these coaches, uh, great coaches. And he did that because he knew that the people would fall in love with his great athletic teams, and the more uh, he could win, the better off he was going to be. And so he paid inordinately huge amounts of money for for coaches, and uh, they did their job. They made it the, uh, the, uh, the uh, sports capital of Southwestern North Dakota, basketball, uh, state tournament teams and a championship and a few second place finishes and undefeated football teams and state championships and wrestling and, and all of that. And so that's how he controlled the community. And that's how he stayed in the community for 20 years, even though uh, the last 10 of those, there was a huge amount of of uh, you know rumors going around and high school kids were actually following him around at night and observing his activities through the through his windows and 
actually witnessing some of these some of these events, some of these uh, attacks on women. Uh, not all of it got into the book because it wasn't revealed to me until after. The oh book wow. Was well, let's talk about that. We know he was, you know, a scumbag. He was stealing money, uh, lying to the community, doing fraudulent activities. What else was this guy into? Uh, well, I mean, he uh, was uh, – I'm not sure what what, he, what you mean by that. In other words, well, what other nefarious activities was it taking place that uh, would normally be looked down upon being in his position, you know? Well, he, he was targeting women in the parish. Uh, and we don't know exactly how that transpired. But, you, uh, of course, you understand that the Catholic Church has something called confession. And in the 50s and 60s, the Catholics were pretty rigid about their uh, uh, going to confession, weekly at least, some every day. And they were telling stuff to their priest that they wouldn't tell to anybody else. And, of course, they thought any kind of sexual activity, any kind of birth control um, uh, was all a mortal sin. And so to be forgiven of that sin, they needed to confess it to the priest. And so presumably he knew what was going on in the community uh, from that side of things. Uh, from day one, and he would take advantage of these women. And they would come to him for counseling and end up being victimized. And so that was kind of the start of it. But uh, uh, I don't know, I'll tell a story about the one coach. Um, uh, this takes a little while, but it's probably emblematic of of one of the worst things that, that, that happened in the community. Yeah, um, sure. So uh, his first really great coach was a guy that coached me while I was in high school and took us to our first state tournament team and was his cousin. And the, the guy had gone, uh, had been a great athlete in high school. He had gone to college, been a great college athlete. He'd been a, a, a assistant uh, coach at the college, a student, a grad assistant. And um, so the, the priest recruited him with uh, big money to come to this small town he had offers from some of the biggest high schools in, in uh, Montana to come in as an assistant coach. But this guy, the priest gave him big money to come to this little, little town. He was happy to do that. Uh, but the priest attacked his, his wife. The coach caught him, caught him having sex with his wife. And he took his gun out and he was going up to the, to the, to the, uh, um, where the priest lived. And he was going to shoot him, but uh, his wife got the cops there ahead of him, and they talked him out of it. But, of course, that broke up that marriage, and, and that coach left town. And then the, the, the next one that came along was he had a friend who was running a, uh, the school, the Catholic school in Billings, Montana. And the coach there, uh, that the guy that coached basketball and football, had the winningest uh, lifetime percentage in the history of the state of Montana in both basketball and football. And he wanted that guy. And the way that he got him was that the guy was an alcoholic. And his he had ruined his relationship with his family. And they were heading for a divorce. And his alcoholism got worse and worse and worse. And so he left town. And nobody knew who he really was. And uh, But the uh, priest found him in a, in a barn in Grable, Wyoming. And he went down there. And he wanted him to coach his, his teams. 
And so he had already, he had already talked to his wife, convinced her that he would he would be able to put this uh, coach in, in alcoholic treatment. Uh, he would pay for everything. Uh, they would come to town. He would uh, coach football and basketball, and uh, their marriage would be restored, and all of those good things would happen. And that actually did happen. Uh, he came. He got he got straight, sobered up. Everything was going great. And then the priest had a great uh, had a big accident, car accident, and uh, the wife of this coach was a nurse, and um, she wasn't really happy with her job as, as a nurse in Billings, but uh, it was a skill that she had, and and it was she was good. Uh, the co- the priest has this accident; he's in the hospital for almost a year, and uh, needed extraordinary care, and so because this woman had been so uh, appreciative of what he had done for her family, she offered to go to Little Falls, Montana, uh, Little Falls, uh, Minnesota, and stay or work at this hospital and be his caregiver. So that happened, and it wasn't very long. He was uh, sleeping with her. Yeah, and he he was he. And you can read this in the book how he manipulated women into into sleeping with him and and one of the one of his techniques though was that you know while it might be a mortal sin he was a priest and he could immediately forgive their sins and so all would be well <laughs> hey you know he's got uh, and, he's got and, a little logic behind the thinking i guess <laughs> well yeah for sure and, and and the thing is you have to understand that that people in those days were extremely naive because they weren't they were not well educated. A lot of them hadn't even gone to high school, and their education came from the church. And the church used fear and guilt uh, to keep them from straying. And it was just the way things were. So you really can't blame the women so much for anything other than being naive and letting them, letting this priest talk them into having sex with them. But, you know, ultimately their, their families would find out, their husbands would find out those marriage, many of those marriages broke up. And, and but anyway, this family, uh, this woman who took care of them, started sleeping with them. She had seven kids with this coach. And ultimately the coach finds out what's going on. He starts drinking again. Um, and uh, things just fell apart. And it was his oldest son, there's a, that's another really interesting, his oldest son was one of the great basketball players ever played in North Dakota at 14 in a small, tiny little 250-kid uh, uh, school. He was being recruited by uh, UCLA to play basketball as a 14-year-old. Um, that's how good he was. But uh, he was, you know, teenager. He was starting to find out what was going on. He was starting to talk. And so they sent him to uh, California to one of the priest's hotels down there to work for the summer uh, to get him out of town so he wouldn't be spreading rumors. And, of course, the father was becoming disenchanted, starting to drink again, um, causing problems in the community, getting in fights in bars, uh, et cetera. Uh, ultimately, the, uh, and I'll shorten the story a little bit, uh, the uh, situation got so acute that the priest and the, the and the mother uh, decided they had to do something uh, to uh, prevent exposure, 
So they got somebody to, to agree to commit him to a mental institution and they tried to, to grab him. Uh, they called him out of class, asked him to come home for a discussion with the priest about their situation. And their goal there was to, to uh, force him into a vehicle that would take him to a mental institution. Oh, wow. And he was very suspicious. It, this is amazing that he, ne he never knew what was really going to happen, but he didn't go home. He got into his car. He drove off. No, only the clothes on his back and the money in his billfold. And he wasn't seen again by anybody in the community, including his family, for seven years. And he, he had just gone off to Wisconsin and applied for some coaching jobs there. And I don't know the details of all of that, but, uh, but uh, uh, that's where he stayed for a while. And then I got to talk to him before I wrote the book. Uh, he had gone, gone back to Montana to become a stockbroker and he was living uh, in Missoula, Montana at the time. So, but there, I mean, there's so much more to that story. It's all in the book and, and it's, just, uh, it's just outrageous, but it, it ruined that family, seven kids, some took her side, some took his side, you know, and uh, split the family. And uh, as far as I know, they still struggle uh, with that. Man, it sounds like organized crime. Um, it seems like there's no matter what type of position of power you're trying to get to, whether it holds, you know, great power in a community, that it uh, it corrupts people or it attracts corrupt uh, attracts corrupt people to those positions. Uh, the more and more I hear about uh, religious leaders, priests, Catholic priests taking advantage of their positions, uh, stealing money, and it just makes you look at some of these organized religions a lot differently, and if especially if their leaders hold the values uh, that they do and are actually acting this way in our communities. How powerful do you think this guy was? Um, to what levels do you think he was associated with? Well, I think that the primary uh, lever that he had was the knowledge that the bishop was a homosexual. And as a homosexual in 1960, uh, as a bishop of the Catholic Church, that was not something that you wanted anybody to know about. And so he was able, you know, as I wrote it in the book, he, he was caught with his boyfriend uh, when the priest barged in on him one day. I don't know if that actually happened, but for some reason, the priest was able to find this out and uh, used it against the, the, the bishop. And the bishop was uninclined to do anything anyway, because protecting the church was their primary value. And so he never even, uh, uh, as far as we know, the bishop, that is, never even took this to a higher level to discuss it with anybody until he was forced to, uh, after the people in the community began confronting him. Um, but he would never uh, discipline the priest uh, for two reasons. One, he was afraid of being exposed, but the other reason was part of the problem. This priest had created... Uh, one of the most outstanding schools in the state of North Dakota. These kids were well-educated. They were the first, so many of them were the first in their families to go to college. Uh, the athletic program was just amazing. The coaches were outstanding. Um, and uh, he was able to, 
to keep the people uh, uh, under control because of all of this. And so there really wasn't a lot when it comes to how was he was able to control things. It was more the fact that the church wanted nothing to do with this information. Mm. And so and the bishop knew that. And so he just kept it to himself for a long, long time. Uh, even uh, though there were some of the, again, some of the crazy stuff, the girls would go, decide to become nuns, the ones that graduated from this school. And he would reward them with uh, trips to his hotels in, in Disney World, Disneyland in California. And he would have his way with them there. And these girls would go to the convent and they would tell their story to the, the, to the mother superior at the convent. And she would tell them to, to not say anything, just offer it up for, you know, for whatever. Uh, it was a good phrase that they always use, offer it up. Yeah. How long was and this guy in, uh, in power for our, you know, in this position for? Uh, which one, the bishop or the priest? No, the priest. It's 54 to 74, or 53 to 73. Okay. So that's so, when he actually, what was the, what was the kind of cause uh, of the, of his exit from, from that position? Well, um, the, um, uh, as it was written in the book, it was probably a little bit different, but the group of uh, people that were in the community that were exposing all of this just kept insisting, 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 gathering information. And, uh, there was an affidavit written by one of the uh, pro prospective nuns that had had the experience I just described uh, that was sent to the to my sister actually, and they presented this to to the bishop, and uh, so uh, you know he knew that things were going on, and and one that in the middle of all of that. He was actually caught having sex with two of the nuns at the high school. And that was at the end. And it was like, oh, we've got this affidavit. We've got this evidence from the two nuns. And the, the nuns at the convent, at the, the mother house, got, were so up in arms that they said, hey, we're not going back to school. We're not going back to teach there. And in fact, the second semester, 1973, I believe it was, um, they seven of them just didn't show up and he was forced to go out and hire uh lay teachers to finish the school year so that's uh, the bishop was at that point where he couldn't not take action at that point and so they finally defrocked him but here's the rest of the story he moved out of town went came to denver everybody seems to love colorado <laughs> ran his his uh his uh, hotel enterprise from Denver and somehow got reinstated to the priesthood and was saying mass around the, the Denver Archdiocese before he died. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to the temptations that these priests have, despite the vows that they take, uh, it's perfectly understandable that, uh, that some of them, um, in fact, maybe even most of them, I don't know that to be a fact, but uh, uh, would fail to be able to live up to those uh, vows. Uh, but I think the real problem is in the hierarchical nature of the Catholic Church. In fact, I'm not going to speak to other churches because Catholics aren't the only one that have this problem. 
Uh, but uh, it is difficult to deal with in the Catholic Church because of the hierarchy. What, what we have is an anachronistic system in the Catholic Church. It, there's a power structure on the top of which is a pope that is, uh, uh, what's the term I want to use here? I can't, can't think of it up. But uh, what he says on a doctrinal basis is cannot be questioned. There's a word for that. I, I can't think of it right off the top of my head. But uh, and and so he's he's like the king, you know. And and think about it: how many countries in the world that still have kings that are uh, the sole power that are there, that have absolute power uh, are governing countries that are prosperous and, and, and wonderful places to live? They don't exist anymore. But the church is that way. And the, the uh, people around the Pope uh, who actually choose the new Pope after the one dies or uh, in the rare case that he might resign, uh, they're all seeking that position, conceivably at least, okay? And so they want to protect that. It, it comes with great, a great amount of uh, credibility and, and – and, um, it gives them great power and gives them great influence and, 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 and people love that. And so the system doesn't work anymore. And it never really did. You know, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, excuse me, Martin Luther, uh, you know, had this conflict. Uh, there were a lot of reasons why Martin Luther went uh, in the direction that he did, but splitting off from the church uh, well, it should have been an early sign that there was problems. Uh, but it, they just doubled down on everything that they were doing. And, and uh, uh, you know, you, you got to be a, a historian, a church historian to really understand what was going on. But uh, and, and I have to I admit that I have a fair amount of historical background in this in this uh, uh, in this area. I can't take the time now to explain everything. But but um, um so that you know, they because of the power structure and and all of the incentives to keep things secret that there are in in these in this church, uh, these stories don't get told. Not because they don't think they're wrong, but because they're afraid that it's going to impact their power, mm-hmm. and and it will, it will. They cannot uh, enable these stories to become um, common because if they do. People are going to walk. And yeah. If people walk, the hierarchy loses its power. The problem with with that philosophy is that people. This is the twenty first century. People are finding it out. They're walking anyway, and yeah. that's the biggest problem that the church faces today, and it's uh, other religions included. That's what I was just about to ask away. Is is you know are they losing their power anyway? Because it doesn't seem like you know our modern society is gravitating towards you know especially these Catholic and Abrahamic religions anymore. Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's totally counterproductive. I mean, it's totally. I mean, it's a, it just contributes. You know, and, and you know they've tried to do some things that that uh, uh, address the situation today, but it's not enough. And I'll give you a, an example. I, I had a parish priest, a really brilliant homilist, and, and I loved his Sunday sermons and things like that. 
And I went to him one day with my book and I said, you know what? I think that we could, should use the information in this book to try to, to help people. Um, and I said, would you please read the book and, and tell me what you think? And so he said he would do that. And then I set another appointment with him to, to discuss his opinion. And I, wa- I, I went there that, that day for the meeting and he stood me up. And then I, I was able to talk to him on the phone. He says, yeah, I read the book. But he stood me up. Mm. And then he would never communicate with me again. He didn't want anything to do with it, which just solidified my opinions about the pro- problems that uh, are created by this hierarchical nature of the church. He had to keep it, his bishop happy. His bishop has to keep his archbishop happy. The, arch, the archbishop has to keep his cardinal happy. And the cardinals have to keep the pope happy. And so, um, you know, and the pope is is the defender of the, of the faith, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he wants to make dang sure that negative information doesn't get out and alienate the people. Instead of changing the hierarchical nature of the church and allowing the people in the pews, that I call them, the people in the pews to have some power and some influence and the ability to uh, uh, to confront a you know, a a bad priest. And in fact, the ability to help him heal because they're obviously hurting people. They're hurting others. They're hurting themselves too. They're, you know, you've heard of, of, uh, 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 again, excuse me. I, I forget my terminology at time, but, uh, um, can't think of the term. I'm sorry, but uh, um, when you're young, you develop psychological um, uh, um, compensation for the way that you were nurtured. Uh, we're all inadequately nurtured, and so we develop compensations, and we they become a part of who we are. We call it a, in the faith that I practice. We call it a false self, and uh, those are all very painful things that that uh, come back to haunt us probably about when we turn about 40 and and it causes us to react in ways that you know aren't very productive and as a result you know these priests can be helped because these uh, these issues can be uh, uncovered and they can be uh, discussed and they can be helped to help, we can help them ameliorate them so we can not only help the people People, if, if the people are in power, we can not only help those who are abused, but we can have help the abuser as well. Because, you know, the, the grassroots is where power, the, the real, um, um, the, the good sources of power emanate. And where others are granted power to exercise, uh, you know, con, you know uh, administrative duties and things like that. Um, and and that can work in the church. Uh, are you familiar with John Carroll, Bishop John Carroll? Yes. Um, yeah. He, he was the first bishop of uh, of Maryland. Uh, came a, a pioneer bishop, and uh, he actually brought this concept of of democratic uh, control. Uh, um, uh, ma- uh, ma- modeled after the American Constitution. And he suggested that it be the way the American church is governed. And, you know, they just dismissed him and and, uh, uh, 
I don't know if they if they did anything uh, other than that, but uh, absolutely forbid anything like that to be instituted in the American church. And that's really the last time that there was any progress toward, uh, you know, diffusing power from the top to the bottom. Yeah, and even though it people may not be gravitating towards the church as much, it's still just as bad with people blindly putting their faith into leaders, into celebrities, into politicians, into a person just because they saw them on the television tell them to do something because they say it's for their health or they say it's for the benefit of someone else. Instead of doing their own work and research and looking to, into things themselves, they're just blindly following whoever's put on a pedestal in front of them. And I think that yeah. is one of the huge problems that got us to the state we're at right now. Yeah, exactly true. I mean, it's just an insidious process. Yeah, it certainly so. is. Uh, now, what, can we speak to uh, possible answers for this? I know, like we said, there's you know less of this happening with church communities because church communities aren't as prevalent anymore. But you know, it, with our glo- local leaders in general, um, you know, how do we prevent this type of corruption from running rampant through it? Well, I, you know, I think it's got to, it's got to come from internal transformation, internal reform. Um, you can't recreate the power structure. You, you can, uh, you really need to appeal to those of us who would like to be faithful Catholics that they insist on change, hmm. whether it's creating organizations that um, uh, help to identify problems and create solutions for problems. Um, And then basically going to, I think, starting at the grassroots, going to the pastors and saying, these are the things that we think can be done. This needs to change. And then, because there are pastors who know the problems and who would like to help solve the problems. And so you, you just have to find those that are amenable to the change and to the suggestions and will help with their own inputs and things like that. And then gradually move up the power structure to convert the bishops and the cardinals. And then uh, at that point, you have to concede that, you know, you have to make the Pope the equivalent of the Queen of England, you know, an iconic presence, but no power whatsoever. And, and you know, that I think that might be acceptable to people. Because, you know, the Pope is thought to be the successor of St. Peter. Well, fine. Uh, I doubt if St. Peter had, had, had uh, absolute power <laughs> over, over his church. Uh, so why should the, the current Pope? It just, uh, and there's, a, you know, there's so many things in history that cause this to, uh, you know, get set up the way it is uh, that we don't have time to talk about. But mm-hmm. Uh, but well, again, the Vatican is a center of power for for the for the planet uh, when it comes to the the spiritual center, and then we have you know the financial center and the military center. But it's still yeah. one of considered one of the great powers on the planet, right? That's exactly right. And and the reform has to get it can't it's not going to be uh, reformed in a violent fashion. That'll never work. Um, in fact, that was the Roman the Romans tried that back in the you know, first and second, third centuries. But uh, uh, the, uh, the the people can do something about it, but they have to be marshaled. They have to actually uh, uh, make a commitment 
to work with the pastors and then the bishops and then uh, amongst themselves and and the theologians and all of the people that would have positive input to to create change. I actually think that that this is inevitable because you know a church of faith of the Christian faith can only allow uh, the people to leave for so long before they have to confront the reasons. So we're not ready that we're not there yet. But I think, again, it's got to come from the grassroots. It's got to come from the people, the people of faith. There's actually some, some organizations out there that one of which I'm committed to, totally committed to, called uh, the Centering Prayer Movement uh, that has captured millions of people across the planet uh, in one of the most beautiful um, concepts of, of, the, of Christian faith that you can imagine. But it's quite contrary contrary to what they find on at mass on Sunday morning. Let me put you put it that way. So, but that's your that's your uh, uh, group uh, that could potentially be the people, the grassroots element that starts this reform, and it's just got to happen. Because again, there's good priests; they're closest mm-hmm. to the people. They see the problems. They see. Um, um, uh, a lot of the solutions, but they don't have the power to even uh, inquire about solutions. They're just under the thumb. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get into like a, a too deep into a, a theological discussion, but I would think that a lot of these um, these priests and bishops and people in high positions of power within the church are aiming to keep those positions of power no matter what. And you know, there's this debate that the priest class was put into to place just to be that to be a priest class, a mediator between us and God. So we will always believe that we need. This them to communicate with what you know they consider god or spirit or the universe we have to go through this priest class of person that can and only through them uh, or the church that we can get to to god and i think that's an illusion that if broken a lot of these uh people in great positions of power would have wouldn't have that power anymore well you're you're exactly right i don't think there's any question about that i think the the, the great value though of the uh, of the organized church is in introducing the faith to the to the children, mm. you know, and the way that is done is is, is extremely important, uh, and the emphasis that the priest would use with a a seven year old versus a fourteen year old versus a twenty year old versus a seventy year old mm-hmm. would be far different, and there 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 can be all kinds of space in there to allow the people to make their own choices yet stay a part of the group mm-hmm. and that's what's being ignored and you know whenever i try to uh, talk about being a rebel uh, i think about the children what are we going to do with the children we're going to raise them in a godless society yeah some people might say that's okay i don't think so i think that's uh, you know the ultimate cause of some of our societal problems uh, but you know you we can argue about that but uh Anyway, so that's where I'm coming from. And, and uh, again, um, what's developed at the top is insidious, counterproductive, alienating, and the secrets that they keep are hurting people. And that's got to change. 
Yes, I agree 100%. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you had kind of alluded to, that there is this agenda to um, extinguish aspects of spirituality in the church and uh, people looking towards God, especially in the past few years that I've seen globally and you know being even implemented by certain world powers uh, that you know you shouldn't get involved with anything spirituality and there's been trickle down effects that are affecting people in the United States and I want to get your thoughts on that do you see this kind of um, agenda to uh, get people to a more materialistic state more technological state and less reliant on the the natural spiritual state well, I, I don't think there there's any doubt about that. I mean, if you go back to Lenin, uh, one of the first things he did was attack the church. Why? Because that the church enabled people to to think to, to some extent to think for themselves in any way in, in ways contrary to what he uh, needed to exercise his power. And so, the less uh, influence from the church, the better, as far as the secular state is concerned. And I think that we are seeing that in the United States today. I mean, there's, I think there, there's really two sides that have been uh, consolidating and opposing each other, because one side is trying to reduce the impact of religion and faith, and the other is trying to warn people of the hazards of that and they're coming into conflict yeah and i think that is uh you know that's a problem across the board whether it's intentional or not there's conflict and there's division and we can't come together to to even uh, work towards a certain goal because everything is being divided and pushed uh into just these separate camps right now that's all that's all a top-down uh, movement, whether mm -hmm. one side or the other, the people at the top are the one that are top are the ones that are creating the conflicts, and that's why I always talk about the grassroots, because real uh, compromise and real um, uh, and I think good analysis comes from a wide variety of people at the bottom who come together and make the case that they then elevate higher and higher and higher until, until enough people get it to really change the world, change the country, whatever. Mm -hmm. But as a top-down situation, uh, you got one side trying to stifle uh, inquiry. You have the other side trying to uh, demand uh, conformity. And, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? You know, I got to be honest with you. I'm afraid that the guns are going to come out. I really am. Uh, because I, I know people on the right very well. And they've all got guns. Yeah. And they go to gun shows. And they talk. And they counsel together. And they're not happy. Yeah. And they're not about to start shooting at this point. But if they keep... Keep forcing them to well, I have, lose their principles and whatever that mm -hmm. could happen, and that would be that would be the biggest, hugest disaster that ever hit the world. 
what about the possibility that you know systems we're seeing right now are eventually going to to crash? This is the system is not sustainable. We're going to see an economic crash. We're going to see uh, a lot of things kind of crumble f- because the old systems aren't sustainable. And I think we're going to be mo- moving into a new age. But because of that, there's going to be a lot of growing pains. There's going to be a lot of destruction a lot of death and rebirth and with everything that comes after do you think that there will be a uh, kind of reconstruction of the catholic church or organized re- religion as well uh, i just don't see a sustainability in the current systems across the board well i you know i'm ex- extremely hopeful that uh, um you know we get to a point where the uh, the conflict becomes so critical that people rise up and say to themselves, hey, we just made, we need to change uh, the people that are in control and uh, hope then that the new people will be more sensible and and begin to tear down all of the, the negative side of things that have happened over the past 50 years and begin to rebuild in a positive way. I, I, I'm a real believer in the Constitution of the United States. I think John Carroll was on the right, was on the right track when he tried to to democratize the Catholic Church. Uh, I think the great power is in, in the hands of the people, and the people eventually wake up and start to do what's right. So I believe that's, that's hopeful, uh, and, uh, and I think you might agree with me on that. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, and, you know, this this book is an example of how communities can come together and get the truth out. Uh, and I think it's very important for this around the board right now, you know, for people that are holding on to any kind of truth to come out and, and, and get it out there. This is a time of awakening for people. And uh, this is the time for us to make the changes that we want to see for sure. Uh, Charles, this is fantastic. For Before you go, let the people know where they can find your book. Uh, and if you have any social media, website, all that good stuff. Well, um, I got, I'm got. i guilty of not having uh, promoted my book as much as I probably should have. <laughs> but it's it's available on Amazon. Uh, and it's also available on Barnes & Noble's website. Uh, they haven't put it in the stores as far as I know yet. Um, but um, in North Dakota, there's people coming into bookstores asking if it's if they have it. So some bookstores are, are getting it through uh, uh, another source that, that doesn't matter the name of it uh, uh, and, and putting it on the shelves. Uh, but mostly uh, and e- most easily, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on, on um, uh, the, uh, um, uh, what's the uh, well, Kindle. Kindle, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can, it's available on Kindle or in paperback uh, on the website. Um, my uh, uh, Facebook page is called Roman Collar Crime. You can go there. I'm not posting much as much as I used to, um, but uh, um, that's about it, I think, right off the top of my head. But go to to uh, amazon.com put in Roman collar crime it'll come right up you'll see the book you'll see a picture of me Um, it's uh, $12.95 I think uh, to purchase so it's uh, pretty reasonable definitely and it's fantastic I highly recommend everybody go and pick one up Charles this was great I definitely love to talk to you again in the future 
Well, I'd be happy to. Anytime that you want to talk, I'm available. All right. Great. Everyone, have an excellent evening, and we will see you again tomorrow. Talk then. Okay.